the conversation changed from about 2013 on where so many of our customers talked to us about resiliency and keeping the lights on. And a lot of our customers, it used to be, we asked if they have power outages and they would say, oh no, you know, a couple of years ago we had one for 30 minutes or so. And then it got to be more and more frequent that we observed that, you know, our manufacturing facilities or governmental customers were saying, yeah, I mean, we lost power, you know, or Thanksgiving, it was out for four days or, you know, after that storm, you know, power was out for a week. You know, 10,000 people were without power in a certain area for, you know, a week to two weeks. So we noticed the grid becoming less reliable. And on that, you know, there were warnings uh, this summer by, uh, by NERC saying that the MISO, the, the Midwestern um, Independent System Operator, grid operator, was having some serious capacity constraints. We saw the Texas freeze. Since then, ERCOT has regularly had um, capacity constraints. So we're just noticing this, this grid, which is based on 140-year-old technology, like failing on a regular basis. And like, it's so crazy that the stuff that powers our modern lives, like I got a supercomputer in my hand, but it's powered by stuff from like 140 years ago. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Clean Techies podcast. This is episode 59 of the show. I'm your host, Silas Maynard, and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity uh, to bring this show to you and a very, very thankful to you for tuning in. If, uh, if this is your first time with us, please do subscribe and turn on notifications to join us on this journey if you're interested. And if you are a returning listener, we do ask that you please leave a review as it really helps us to get in front of new listeners. Uh, also, if you're a founder in the space, feel free to reach out if you're looking to get the word out about your company. Uh, if you're seeking funding, talent, or possible introductions uh, to other possible partners, feel free to reach out as well. Uh, generally speaking, you know, don't be shy. It's our goal to help people grow in the space. So feel free to reach out. Uh, And with that, let's uh, get into the details of today's episode. So today we are speaking with Ben Parvey, the CEO of Omgrid. uh, That's O-H-M-G-R-I-D, where they are helping residential customers get off the grid. And they do this through a model where they effectively just switch out some equipment, do some upgrades, and then you're, you're basically paying the same price as you would for your electricity bill. Uh, the, the major difference is that you are no longer reliant on the grid uh, and will have guaranteed electricity. So they have uh, solar and storage with generator backups in the event of uh, uh, you know, a serious hurricane or some kind of weather event. And uh, I think generally speaking, what they're doing is really cool. I feel uh, it has a strong appeal to a lot of people who are interested in kind of being uh, not being dependent upon the grid, uh, people who've dealt with power outage issues across the country. So there's a lot of different things I think people... Uh, might be drawn to about this and you know in today's conversation we cover a lot of things of course we go over what they're doing and how they're how what they're um, doing works how they install it uh, the operational process etc we talked about how it affects real estate values and then uh, we also talked about one of my favorite parts was when we were talking about um, how new home builders are kind of adjusting to the market and, and partnering with them in some instances so very generally speaking quite interesting um, I think I'm, I'm sure you'll enjoy the show, but before we do get into it, uh, we also, of course, want to make special thanks to our sponsors, Next Wave Partners. Next Wave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention uh, across the climate tech, renewables, uh, and ESG spaces globally. So if your team is growing or you're looking to make a career change, you can feel free to reach out to them. Uh, you can do that at www.next-wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly. Uh, via their LinkedIn page. So without for any further ado, let's get into the show. All right. Welcome to the show, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Silas? Not too bad. I can't complain. It's a nice day in New York. Yesterday was a little bit crummy, so it's good to have the sun back. Um, where are you Where are you calling from? Well, right now I'm in Long Branch, New Jersey. Very nice. Very nice. So in the same, same uh, general vicinity of the country. I'm really excited to have you on, actually. I think this is uh, something... I don't think we've really had a lot of people kind of talking about uh, individual consumer energy issues, maybe a little bit here and there, but I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation. So in order to get us started, why don't you just kind of give us a quick intro to yourself and what you're doing currently? Yeah. So yeah, I'm Ben Parvey. I I run, you know, for the last 14 years, I've run Blue Sky Power, which is um, 
have headed up the strategic direction and finance structures of this company that does clean energy project development and advisory of solar cogeneration and microgrids, mainly for school districts, municipalities, colleges, universities, manufacturing facilities. Um, and we've done a lot of really great projects that yeah, we're really proud of and serve our customers well. But uh, yeah, we, we took the COVID pivot like a lot of folks and we saw a real need when we were at home and our power went out that we've addressed all these big issues for, for big institutions and business, but we haven't addressed it for consumers. And so technology has gotten to a point where uh, you can combine solar battery storage and a generator to take folks uh, completely off the grid or at least island them off the grid um, and cost parity is there. So, you know, what, what I do now is, is run Blue Sky Power and we've spun off Grid as a new company and we're putting all our effort into serving consumers to take them off grid as a utility alternative. Mm -hmm. We'll get into some of those details and nuance here. I'm curious, how did you end up getting into energy space? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it was sort of a gradual evolution from a while ago, I guess about 2000, a, a few factors played into it. In 2005, they passed the Energy Independence and Security Act, which had the investment tax credits for renewable energy, as well as clean renewable energy bonds. So I was a public finance attorney back then, and I was reading, you know, as a young associate about these clean renewable energy bonds. And I just thought it was interesting. At the same hand, out of personal, you know, uh, activities, I chaired our county's environmental commission. So I was interested in helping our environment and seeing what I could do to, you know, make our local community greener and more sustainable. And I just started connecting the dots of of institutional finance policy and personal interest for helping the environment. Um, and a friend of mine. Uh, and I went to Wharton strategic business planning classes at night while we were doing our full-time jobs and wrote a business plan to do exactly what Blue Sky Power has been doing. And so in 2008, we, we quit our jobs and we've been going ever since. That's interesting. Can you talk a little bit about, so when exactly in 2008, right? Because that was right around <laughs> uh, the financial crisis. I'm very curious what, what made you decide that? Because I'm assuming it was after the, the everything kind of hit the fan. No, it, it actually wasn't. Um, you know, I, I'd started working on it, you know, in the spring of 08 and was starting to phase out of, of my law firm and told them what I was doing. Um, and, uh, you know, we officially started the company in, in the fall of 08, but we were already actively working on it through the spring and summer. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, the absolute worst time to quit your job at a, at a big law firm and start a, a little clean energy uh, development company that, that was back in the days before, you know, Clean energy was cool and everyone was doing it. Um, so people were like, what's this thing you're doing? Um, and so, yeah, tough, tough time to start a company. We were going to go raise a bunch of money. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Great Recession started. And so we just bootstrapped from there and started representing yeah, school districts and municipalities on, on clean energy projects and kept going from there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting. Obviously, a lot of people say maybe it's a bad time to start a company. But ultimately, I think the companies that whether they start right before or during that time that can hold their own really kind of have staying power, right? Cause they've, they've done a good thing. And, and you also have history now, right? You were part of clean tech 1.0 uh, <laughs> and now, now you can be grandfathered into the 2.0 and hopefully, hopefully you don't have a, another fallout. I sometimes, some people speculate there will be a little bit of a, a 3.0 coming our way, but let's hope it just continues. Well, um, there will be, I mean, it, it continues to progress and evolve. Um, you know, I mean, people used to ask me years ago, they say, hey, you know, we're we're going green, we're going off the grid. And I'd be like, that's not a thing. Like, you can't, you can't do that. Um, you know, and here I am, you know, running a company that's taking folks off the grid. So, you know, it is a constant evolution. I mean, years ago, battery storage was so expensive, it wasn't even viable. And now, you know, even solar, when I first started, was at $8 a watt. Now it's $1.50 at $2 a watt. So as technology evolves, and commercialization happens and prices come down um, and new technologies, <clears throat> you know, grow and evolve. It really makes, you know, tremendous possibility for passionate innovators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I definitely agree. I think what, what I want to be, what I want to get into now is I'm, I'm very curious to understand kind of the nuances of when we're looking at taking individual homeowners off the grid you know, I, I know from kind of where I'm from, I remember when I was much younger, some some friend of ours took us to this kind of renewable energy fair before I knew anything about it. I just remember there's cool science stuff going on. And um, there's a lot of these people who are very independent minded, kind of live out in the middle of nowhere, go off the grid. 
but it seemed to be very, very difficult and quite, quite costly. So I'm curious if you could walk us through some of the dilemmas that kind of hold back people or, or have held back people back to do this and kind of walk us through what the evolution of maybe something you guys have done or other companies have done to really make this possible now and just walk us through that process. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, it certainly was much harder, uh, you know, a few years ago to do this. And that really is based on the advancement in battery storage technology and um, commercialization leading to cost reduction. So, uh, you know, it used to be if people tried to do it, it would be incredibly expensive. So we actually took our cues from the Australians. So after the the brush fires um, destroyed, you know, I forget what the figure is. It's, it's something insane. I mean, millions and millions of acres. Um, some of the utilities there didn't reconnect people and run the distribution lines that had burned down. Instead, the utilities took folks off the grid because it was mm-hmm. less expensive to take folks off the grid than it was to run distribution systems. So, you know, a few years ago, if you saw, hey, you know, some hippie out in the woods is trying to go off, you know, <laughs> go off the grid and like, you know, they live half the day without power. You know, that's not really the case now. So, you know, what we're doing is making this incredibly easy for folks to just have a utility alternative that you don't have to be tied to the grid. Or we can also have a grid optional where the grid connection is still there as a backup. So, you know, with solar, battery storage, power generator and the grid, you have triple redundancy. So what we're offering is 100% guaranteed power. So you're never going to lose power. Um, and we we fund and operate these just like the utility doesn't you know charge you for the meter or the power lines. You just get your monthly bill. We're just offering a subscription service where you know we operate the equipment and you just pay your monthly bill. So in terms of the installation, it's not this is not some sort of contract where people have to kind of purchase it as part of the equipment. It goes into their house and they just make a payment. You guys are handling all that and, and handling the financing. Yep, that's right. So we fully fund all the systems. Interesting. So then I am curious, I think, well, we, we've kind of gone over that already. So what what are the benefits to homeowners beyond, are, are there benefits, I should say, from a home resale value of having this equipment there? Because obviously there's some effort that goes into installation and things like that. Yeah. So there's certainly, there've been a number of studies on resale of homes with solar as having higher resale value. But I'd go beyond that because we're not just talking about solar. And I, I think we, we might talk about it later, perhaps. But, you know, we're not just talking solar, battery storage, and a generator. You know, we're also, as we move along, um, going to start implementing hydrogen fuel cells as well as micro CHP. So there are other opportunities if someone doesn't have adequate uh, sun resources to be able to power their homes. But, um, you know, you were asking about resale value. So increased resale value by having solar studies have shown. The other one is on having guaranteed power. So, you know, when we bought our house, you know, it had an existing home generator. You know, that that has value for a whole house generator. Um, Actually, insurance companies that provide homeowners insurance give folks discounts if they have a generator because that leads to fewer um, outage related claims. When storms happen and people lose power, you know, there are a whole host of different issues that arise that lead to homeowners claims. So there's, there's additional value in having, you know, clean and resilient power that increases resale values. What, what if people want to purchase the equipment, are they able to do that kind of over the long term so that they can just be part of the, the value of the home that goes with it, you know, regardless of who comes and goes? Well, so it does, it does stay with the home. I mean, we don't remove this and put yeah, it yeah. on. I mean, put on, you know, as the people move, we'll put a new home grid on their new home, but you know, the system stays and it stays, runs with the property. So the new, the new uh, buyers are able to keep the system. Um, as far as a, a purchase option, we're operating our model strictly as the, the monthly bill that we, you know, fund own and operate. However, a few people have inquired if, you know, say, hey, I don't absolutely do not wanna, um, you know, be on a subscription service. I wanna pay it outright. Um, and we're, we're sort of wrestling with whether we just help those people go ahead and, and get off yeah. the grid and, and implement their systems. And I'm not sure why not, you know, I mean, I think it, it takes away a little bit from the business model, but our goal is to provide a complete utility alternative to folks. I mean, the archaic, uh, grid is failing everyone. So, I mean, if someone doesn't want to undertake, 
you know, the model that we're proposing, we should still at least help them, you know, find the resources and mm -hmm. even help design their systems and get them installed for them. And then they can take it from there and even contract with us to do the O&M. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, are, are, you know, on an average, you know, American home kind of in the suburbs or something, are, is the roof uh, capacity and kind of sun capacity usually enough to be able to charge up the battery and keep them operating on a, a usual, a usual homes power needs. Yep. So it's close. So in the homes we've looked at, uh, a lot of them do have adequate resources. Some of them we have to add a little bit, and it's great because there was a luxury home builder in in New York who said, "Hey, you know, I've done these solar pergolas for some folks," and we started looking into it. And I mean, honestly. If a house is close and then needs a, you know additional few kilowatts, we can put a covered pergola, which a lot of people like you know a covered area in their backyard anyway. They get a covered area you know to you know be able to sit in their backyard, and we have additional solar capacity to serve them to charge the battery. So we've been coming up with some innovative solutions, and also you know on on larger lots and places we can do ground mounting systems. Mm -hmm. And then generally speaking. I'm curious because I know that obviously solar depends on a bit of uh, certain resources, right? Uh, natural resources. So are there areas of the country where it's a little bit more difficult to make this work? It requires a bit extra space. Like what are the areas that are kind of almost essentially like almost always workable? And then, you know, what are some of the downsides there and, and maybe just areas that need to be concerned about? Yeah. I mean, really it, it depends on, you know, not as much on, on location based on solar resources or solar irradiation, it really depends on what the state regulatory framework is as to where the targets are. Mm. But I mean, solar works, you know, in Maine, you know, Vermont, New Hampshire. So it's not like our, our Northern states don't have adequate solar capacity to be able to charge, you know, keep folks charged up. Could, could you talk about, you mentioned and, the regulatory, the regulatory items. Could you talk about what you mean there? I'm, I'm curious to understand um, those items. Yeah. So, Part of it is that the systems work well, but they work, meaning the economics of the systems, but they work even better in states that have favorable incentives and regulatory frameworks that encourage clean energy as well as battery storage. So, um, you know, there are a number of states that are more favorable than others. So states that have SRECs, um, you know, Connecticut recently uh, has a, a tariff for solar that's very favorable. Um, and there are a lot of states that, that have either SRECs or some incentive program or grant program that make it more beneficial, more economical for consumers. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, by the way, do, I don't know how the, 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 the dynamic works here, but are there ever issues with utilities? Like, is this something that they're in favor of usually? Like, what, what does that usually look like? Um, yeah, I mean, this is not something utilities are are all that excited about or even think about. Um, I mean, you know, the the number, if you think about it, taking a few houses off or even a few hundred houses off in a specific utility service territory is absolutely nominal to them. I mean, they're, you know, they're customers that really affect their their revenue base as well as their capacity are really, you know, large energy consuming customers. So it's not that big a, an issue for them. It's certainly not something that they're in favor of, but it's also not something that they, you know, are really against right now because it just has has little to no impact on. Them. Mm -hmm. But I will say some of those incentive programs, you know, in certain states, some of them are just run through the utilities. So, you know, the, you have to work with the utilities in order to qualify for the incentive programs, in which case, you know, you can take folks off grid or at least propower them, you know, with grid optional where the grid is there as backup. So you retain the connection to mm -hmm. get the incentives, but people are operating off grid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Obviously the grid is extremely complex. And uh, I mean, I, I had one person recently describe it as kind of like lava flowing out of the mountain into the houses, right? Um, but what about when people are still connected to the grid? How does, you know, is it even possible to sell excess energy back to the grid? Yeah, so that's not a real favorable scenario. Um, it's just not a real favorable scenario because in most states, again, we go back to this hodgepodge of state regulations, which actually we should probably talk about just the grid as a whole in a minute relating to the hodgepodge and sort of no one being in control. But it, it is a hodgepodge because in some states you can't sell back at all. 
In other states, you know, you can sell a certain portion back. And then in some other states, you know, you sell back to the grid and you get your full retail rate for selling back to the grid. So in some states, it's very favorable and other states, it's a non-starter. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Could, could you go into the details that you mentioned kind of about the hodgepodge and kind of explain how, how things are currently set up? Yeah, I, I mean, the issue is, which you know, has, got, has gotten me pretty fascinated over the last couple of years, is really what got us into this was, you know, in the first, you know, I said, we've been in business 14 years. And in the first, you know, from 2008 through 2013 you know, or so, even 14, everyone only wanted to talk about sustainability and clean energy. And that switched after all these huge hurricanes and long power outages of a couple of weeks in certain areas from, you know, Superstorm Sandy, and we're getting ready to come up on the 10th anniversary in October here in New Jersey, um, to uh, hurricanes in Texas, the huge Houston floods and power outages there, um, to Florida power outages where there were loss of life in senior living facilities, to Puerto Rico, where, you know, some people didn't have power for nine months. So the conversation changed from about 2013 on where so many of our customers talk to us about resiliency and keeping the lights on. And a lot of our customers, it used to be, we asked if they had power outages and they would say, oh no, you know, a couple of years ago we had one for 30 minutes or so. And then it got to be more and more frequent that we observed that, you know, our manufacturing facilities or governmental customers were saying, yeah, I mean, we lost power, you know, or Thanksgiving, it was out for four days or, you know, after that storm, you know, power was out for a week. There are 10,000 people were without power in a certain area for, you know, a week to two weeks. So we noticed the grid becoming less reliable. And on that, you know, there were warnings uh, this summer by, uh, by NERC saying that the MISO, the, the Midwestern um, independent system operator, grid operator, was having some serious capacity constraints. We saw the Texas freeze. Since then, ERCOT has regularly had um, capacity constraints. So we're just noticing this, this grid, which is based on 140-year-old 140 technology, like failing on a regular basis. And like, it's so crazy that the stuff that powers our modern lives, like I got a supercomputer in my hand, but it's powered by stuff from like 140 years ago. And so, I mean, that's why we view this as power for modern life. And so this study, uh, Princeton University study that was quoted in uh, Reuters article at the end of May said it's gonna cost roughly $2 trillion to upgrade uh, America's transmission system. And that's just the transmission system, those big steel towers from the industrial revolution, not the distribution system, which is all the power lines, which essentially are just, um, you know, strip trees with cables mm -hmm. you know, strapped to them that we call utility poles. Um, I mean, so two trillion dollars just for the transmission system. That's not even including substations and distribution systems that are totally failed, like in California, where they were, were held, PG&E was held liable for the wildfires that killed mm -hmm. you know, yeah. over 80 people and caused billions of dollars of damage. Um, so the grid is becoming less stable. And to say, we, you and I both know, Silas, that we're not gonna, you know, America's not gonna be able to afford $2 trillion worth of grid modernization efforts in the next few years so that the grid can handle both the electric revolution and EVs. Mm -hmm. So yeah. talking about, you know, distributed generation microgrids and off-grid is not just like an idea, but an absolute essential. So when, you know, no one's really in charge. So, you know, like I said, all the states do something different. And even if the federal government, um, you know, even if FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, wanted to provide some directive to upgrade the, the transmission system, they have to get each state to approve that. So if they're going to run, you know, a cable, you know, thousands, hundreds of miles or a thousand miles, you got to get each state regulatory body as well as all the property rights approved. And so it's just not really this grid modernization we've talk, talked about just isn't happening. So that's really what, you know, I talk about when I talk about this, this hodgepodge and, and grid instability. It's just, you know, it, it's not viable to continue to try to patch together this archaic system that's ancient technology. Yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously 
it's a difficult situation because even if it was kind of managed by one central authority, there's going to be issues then still, right? You, as we know, that kind of central management doesn't necessarily work, especially on a scale like the United States, right? It's going to be very, very difficult. So yeah. I guess, do you have, do you have kind of realistic thoughts about what you think may happen over the coming, let's say two to, to three decades? I'm always curious to understand like the long-term, what do you think might be some of the solutions that come up? Does, you know, does, do utilities get broken up into more small regional things? Does everything, is there a way to make the utilities interact with consumers more that there is a two-way street rather than a one-way? Like, what are your general thoughts on where we're headed for these things? Well, I mean, if you say two to three decades, I, I mean, tons of possibilities open up. Tons of possibilities open up. Um, you know, I was I was at a museum recently and saw a, uh, I'll, I'll say this briefly and yeah, tell me if I'm going too long, but um, in that museum was uh, some different um, horse-drawn carriages. And one of them, yeah, was uh, made by Firestone and it had, you know, rubber tires <laughs> essentially, you know, on the, on the spool wheels. And it also had like a suspension system. And I looked on the date on that, it said 1918. And I was like, wow that's only a hundred years ago. Like Firestone was making horse-drawn carriages only a hundred years ago. Like- That's pretty crazy. That's pretty crazy, right? I mean, yes, we know cars, you know, were starting to be developed around that time and, and there were cars on the road then, but there were plenty of horse-drawn carriages in 1918. I mean, people talk about, oh yeah, yeah, my, my grandmother was, yeah, great-grandmother was, was my great-grandfather, you know, was, you know, graduated from medical school in 1918. Like it's not, it's not a thousand years ago that there were horse-drawn carriages, only a hundred years ago. Um, so 20 to 30 years from now, it's gonna be that the technology drives the solutions. I will say the utility model and the transmission and distribution system as they are, are totally antiquated monopolies that are archaic and there is gonna have to be some kind of reckoning for that technology. Now there is a place. So that place, I think, is to provide power for certain urban areas, as well as um, acting as sort of a, a grid support in ways that interface with that technology. But we talk about 20, 30 years from now, like I started smiling as you were talking about, because I'm thinking like fusion may have substantial progress by then, you know, the hydrogen economy will be, you know, very well on its way. Um, and there are tons of new ideas that, you know, I can't even think of right now that, you know, I'm terribly excited that, you know, I read these, you know, just being in clean energy, you know, I read different articles about what people are working on and it's so cool, but yeah, fusion, fusion is definitely a big one. Some, some companies have made some great investments into fusion, you know, over many years, but, you know, I think those will start to pay off soon. And obviously hydrogen fuel cells for distributed generation will, will take place, but really, in talking about utilities and the grid, they're going to have the regulations are going to have to adapt to allow us to do microgrids and distributed generation and mass, and to make it possible and viable, and not just succumb to the will of the utilities to just con to continue to perpetuate that monopoly without allowing American innovation. And just saying, hey, this is status quo. This is the way it's worked for, you know, 140 years. Let's just keep doing that. And the grid mm -hmm. really evolved just based on how Thomas Edison started, you know, at Pearl Street Station with the first, you know, microgrid and then expanded out from there. You know, that's how we ended up with ComEd and ConEd um, and the different uh, Edison companies. And they created little grids that then expanded. So the reason we have the grid it's just by happenstance. It's not like that is the only solution. Yeah, it's not like it was the best design per se, right? It just was what was available. Right, um, and certainly not I, the best design for today. Yeah, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I've, if I've read correctly, Japan has a pretty well-distributed uh, grid system where if one part goes down, it can kind of, the other parts can support it. It's, it's kind of interconnected in that way. Obviously, it's much smaller landmass, but I'd be keen to see how it plays out, especially with the increase of, you know, everything is going to be electrified, of course, but also we're going to have a bunch of batteries on wheels driving everywhere, right? So I'd be keen to see if EVs and just generally speaking, the increase of battery storage or energy storage in general 
we'll create some more innovations around breaking down the grid into smaller bite-sized pieces where everything is kind of interacting like a breathing organ, right? Where it can, you know, you can shift power kind of like Iron Man, you know, shifts the power to whatever, <laughs> whatever part of his suit he needs. Right. I think it'd be, it'd be interesting to see. I, I have hope, but at the same time, I know it's very difficult because I think somebody recently on the show just mentioned that utilities are driven by the regulation, right? They're not driven by innovation. So the regulation would have to change in order to convince utilities to change because that's basically how they decide whether or not they're gonna make money. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, obviously a very, very difficult problem to, to dive into. Um, I want to go a little bit back to the process of the installation of your guys' kind of equipment here. Once this stuff is installed, well, let's do two things. What does the installation process look like? You know, is it a day, is it a week? And then once it's up and running, what does it look like to, to be an owner uh, of a house with this equipment on? Is it pretty automated? What if I go for vacation for a week? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So installation is just, yeah, two to three days. It's, it's pretty short. It's very easy. You know, the big commercial industrial installations we do take a long time, but the, you know, I mean, months and months. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, two to four days at a home. Um, certainly under a week. And then as far as the ease of use, yeah, completely easy. I mean, everything we're doing is so that people, you know, set it and forget it. Um, the whole purpose here is that, uh, you know, you have guaranteed power, you have flat monthly billing, you have exceptional customer service and an amazing customer experience. And it's easy. You don't have to think about it and you don't have to deal with it and you don't have to risk, you know, having power outages. But yeah, if you go on vacation, there's nothing you need to do. You know, just make sure you adjust your thermostat so you're not wasting energy and keep your home energy efficient. Interesting. You mentioned that this is a flat to flat bill. So it's not it's not altering kind of like obviously I'm in New York and energy prices pretty much skyrocket uh, in the summer. But is it flat throughout the whole year? Yeah. 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 Because we're just funding we're just funding that system. Mm. We're not buying commodity that's, you know, at risk of volatility other than if you need to use the generator a little bit. And generally, you know, that cost stays fairly minimal because the generator may only need to run for 20 or 30 minutes here and there to, to charge the battery up. Okay, interesting. So, that's interesting. so yeah, we're not- that's a fixed that's cost. Whole, yeah, it's a fixed cost. We're not subject to commodity prices. Interesting. That's very, that's gotta be attractive to a lot of people, especially uh, people who really like budgeting. That'd be very helpful. Um, yeah. <laughs> one thing I'm curious about is always, you know, how these, I come from a background of kind of blue collar workers. We call my family kind of grew up. My parents were both farmers and my dad built, built cabinets. So I'm always curious to see as technologies like this kind of just start to get proliferated into the, into the economy. Do you see anything happening with builders in general, like how they're looking at, at this from, from a perspective of, Hey, why don't we get ahead of this to be, uh, to be a leader in, you know, in the, in this space, maybe our houses will sell sooner. I'm curious to understand if you see any trends around that. Yeah, most definitely. Um, yeah, big priority of ours is working with new home construction and new home builders and developers. Um, some other companies have announced partnerships with battery manufacturers and and uh, national home builders uh, to put them in houses. So yeah, we're we're very excited about that. You know, new home construction. We have a, a priority called Built with Home Grid, which is two year strategic initiative to you know collaborate with builders and developers in our target states. Um, and we'll, we're reaching out to him right now. Uh, funny. I just had a, a call with a guy who works with us. Um, he's created a whole list of, of them and, and we have a program that, that we're making available for them. So yeah, new home construction is easy. You know, it's easier than doing a retrofit. Mm -hmm. And then I guess I'm curious on, especially in the, you know, multifamily side of things, are, are there a lot of landlords who find this interesting and is it, is it necessarily as viable for maybe powering their entire, I'm assuming that depending on the you know, space constraints, they might, have, might not have enough space to power their entire system, but they still may have you know, room to install the backups and everything like that. I'm curious if you've seen a lot of that coming up because I know a lot of you know, landlords become a dirty word these days, I think, uh, to some extent. <laughs> I actually think this is more than just a joke. I think uh, there's certain, certain social media platforms recommending it that you shouldn't use it because it's a negative word. But I'm just curious to see what you've what you've seen on that front. Yeah, so multifamily for us is not 
particularly viable in this first phase of doing solar battery storage and, and generators, um, mainly because you know you can't invoice individual tenants when doing one whole system or then you become regulated as a utility. Um, mm-hmm. But we've done, you know, meaning you know, Blue Sky Power has done a lot of you know, solar battery storage and cogeneration microgrids for senior living and collegiate housing, you know, which are the same as multifamily, uh, meaning they're, they're a bunch of individual units. So um, for powering off-grid with multifamily, again, we go back to the same thing, depends on the state regulation. If, you're, mm-hmm. if you can provide on-site power as a, as a well, if you don't want to use that word, as a uh, multifamily owner <laughs> and provide that through to your tenants, um, then uh, in that case, in some states you can do that and power can just be included in the rent. You know, some places, you know, your electric water, you know, all utilities included. Mm-hmm. Same could be there. I mean, where, uh, you know, a landlord can build a property or, sorry, not a landlord, a property <laughs> owner, um, can can build a property, uh, you know, or install a system at, at one of their properties and just include that in the rent to their tenants. But in okay. some states, their regulations about providing power for tenants that mm. you have to charge them all. I forget. I mean, they're just different regulations. Some of them you have to, you know, separately submeter it or you have to provide, you know, they have to pay for what they use or mm. provide a flat rate. It really, it's depends yeah. on the regulation. Yeah. Obviously there's a lot of rules around uh, those, those renting uh, rules. I've, I've, I've read about them myself, I guess on that topic of regulations, are there, do you know of any kind of major regulations coming down uh, maybe on a federal level down the pipe to try to help uh, change some of these things that trying to, and anything that's really substantial that people should be aware of. Yeah. I, I gotta be honest. I, you know, I used to spend, you know, the first few years of, of being in business, going to all the stakeholder meetings and following all the regulations and printing hundreds of pages of federal legislation. You know, in my, my younger days, I worked on the, in the Senate and the house on the Hill and uh you know, as a public finance attorney, I used to represent states and, and counties and municipalities. And I used to pour through all these regulations, but, you know, there's just too much going on and a lot of it doesn't pass. You know, they discuss it for forever and it doesn't go anywhere. Um, I honestly don't, don't follow the regulations all that closely nowadays unless it passes and, you know, has serious impact on our industry. So, you know, as far as having real impact, I don't really see anything on the federal level. Um, you know, I know they're trying to pass, you know, upgrades to the grid, um, which, you know, some of that obviously is essential, but yeah, I don't see any real regulation that's all that favorable. Um, you know, there are some, you know, FERC orders that, you know, encourage demand response or, you know, people being you know, able to have resources that are available for grid support. And that's a place where a lot of people, you know, see some movement. I mean, where we may keep a grid connection, not use any power from the grid, and then we're you know our customers are actually available to you know provide grid support on mm-hmm. you know days like this where it's ninety seven degrees and the grid can't keep up. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, by getting off the grid, we may be able to you know help support the grid. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's all. I I agree. I think that it's a tough one, especially with energy. Right. It's I'm the type of person who usually is in favor of less regulation, but obviously it's a, it's a tough one because there has to be regulation to some extent. Um, yeah, but- I, I got, I gotta say though, uh, the, the regulatory frameworks on, you know, on the state level and federal level, you know, related to energy and, and protecting the monopoly. Um, it's just so outdated, you know, the utilities, this all came about the utilities asked to be regulated. That was because they were becoming so profitable as we reached, you know, you know, the original, you know, electrification, you know, 1.0 of, uh, you know, having grid or electric power. Um, And they were becoming so profitable that the the trust busters in the 1920s were threatening to break them up. And they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh. don't 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 break us up. Instead, just regulate us and give us a fixed rate of return every year. And that way we can maintain our monopoly uh, under state regulation. So again, 
this is just an evolution from a hundred years ago that we're protecting the status quo. I mean, we need to rethink the whole regulatory framework. Again, maintaining the status quo, you know, stifles innovation. You know, if you, you know, you hear me saying over and over, yeah, we can do this here, but not there. It works okay there and not there. Like whatever's best for the consumer should make sense. I mean, if they can't guarantee power, then it's not a great service. Like if we have a service that's able to guarantee power to consumers, isn't that the best for Americans? I mean, it's why supposed- on earth, why on earth would you say, you know, no, we don't want to let you do that. Or we're not going to, we'll fund some systems if they do it exactly the way we say to do it, but not others. Yeah. It's, it's also not necessarily good to have several, you know, single points of contact. I mean, you could look at it from a national security perspective, right? Like if you can take down a couple of central operators, you can really put the whole country in, and not just consumers, right? There's obviously manufacturing and there's a lot of output, right? GDP that's kind of on the line. So you could really make a case for this is very bad. We should have it much more broken up. You know, we kind of talked about this earlier, but now that we're, we're back on this, I would be keen if you have a framework in your mind, do you have ideas about kind of in a large country like the United States, is there a kind of an ideal or at least preferable compared to what we have now type of framework for how energy would be set up? Uh, you know, again, with, taking into account urban and rural areas, do you have any kind of frameworks that you usually like to work off of if you could wipe the whole thing clean and had, you know, infinite amount of capital to just deploy something new? I mean, I certainly, you know, I I don't, I mean, I've never, that's a great question. I've never really thought about it, sort of operating on what we have, not necessarily what I wish it was. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I think the dream is America's flourished when we've encouraged innovation and advancement. And so, I mean, to remove regulation while keeping consumer protections in place, I think is advisable. Um, but I mean, I would I would slash the the regulations on you know on energy substantially that you know don't continue to perpetuate the monopolies and instead encourage innovation. And, you know, instead of running clean energy programs through the utilities, you know, make them, make them available to folks who are providing solutions to consumers and then put Mm -hmm. consumer protections in place to make sure that, you know, consumers are protected, but Mm -hmm. the regulatory frameworks aren't necessarily set up with the best interest of the consumers in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting. It's obviously extremely complicated, especially because it's not like the country can just change the laws, right? The states also have to. So, can, uh, can we go back a little bit? Yeah. You mentioned cybersecurity. Um, you know, not even cybersecurity. I mean, there's even physical security where, you know, there have been, you know, people with, with rifles shooting substations, um, you know, or, or cybersecurity or actual terrorism. Um, one of our board members, Rick Moreau's, is uh, board members of OMGRID. Um, is a former New Jersey Board of Public Utilities president um, and uh, Councilor Christy Todd Whitman when she was governor. Um, Rick has become one of the nation's leading experts on cybersecurity and especially cybersecurity within the energy industry. So, I mean, I learned so much in talking to Rick. I've always said, even you know, sort of before getting Rick's thoughts on things, that, um, you know, the problem is, you know, one thing the U.S. military looks at is limiting points of failure. But if you look at the grid and the transmission and distribution system, it's infinite points of failure. Do you know there are more power outages caused by squirrels and mylar balloons than, than anything else? The 2005 New York blackout, brownout or whatever they call it, um, was caused by a squirrel in Ohio. And that Yikes. spread, you know, the infection spread, um, you know, from Ohio onward through the PJM grid and then impacting in, on into New York. Um, you know, I mean, it's just multiple points of failure. Again, ancient technology. I mean, the California wildfires um, that, you know, caused by PG&E. Do you know what the cause of that was? Mm-mm. It was a hook. It was like a hundred year old hook like this that held a, held a cable. And over the years, the cable, you know, wore it down and it cut through the cable dropped and sparked wildfire. 
I mean, it, it's just, it's infinite points yes. of failure. And so you talk about cybersecurity, all of those, if you decentralize and democratize energy, then you're eliminating all those points of failure. I mean, so just as the US military does in trying to eliminate points of failure, which you know, I know from a good friend of ours who does energy projects for the, for the military. Um, I mean, with our energy system, we should be looking at trying to make it safe, secure, and reliable. Maintaining the existing system is not safe, secure, and reliable. And it's not cost-effective to make this antiquated system safe, secure, and reliable. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I, I feel it's obviously difficult. And I think a lot of people, it, to me, at least the, the circles I follow and especially the podcasts I listen to, there's been a lot of discussion, especially with the energy crisis and the kind of the issues with the Ukraine war. And yeah. people are starting to realize that energy independence is extremely important, right? We have to be, and this is for any country, not just the United States, right? That energy independence is super important. And if that means taking it down to the individual home, or at least on a citywide kind of number, uh, uh, you know, scale, that that's very important, right? To have the resiliency. I think, I think that is, is interesting. It's really interesting also to hear that such small, small things caused those, you know, <laughs> massive issues right um that's obvious I, I i did not know that before that's interesting i definitely have to uh note that um yeah did you have any other thoughts on there otherwise i wanted to move on to the topic of education yeah not necessarily although it reminded me when you're talking about the future and you know 20 30 years from now i'm talking even 10 years from now just on different technology is uh there's a great company holtec international out of camden new jersey that um, you know they serve uh, you know most of the U.S. nuclear facilities um, in dealing with spent fuel rods, um, but they are developing a small modular reactor that is you know completely safe and able to power you know a small city. Mm. That's one of those solutions that I think goes in the mix of you know ten, twenty, or thirty years of being a real solution of you know carbon-free and also, you know, safe and, and reliable. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting also to see, you know, especially if small, smaller municipalities, right, where there's a lot less bureaucracy could work towards potentially becoming themselves more independent um, as, as in a city, right, or, you know, a group of 10,000 to 100,000 people kind of building, building models there where they can go and advocate to the state government saying, hey, you know, we've got X, X and Y, lined up to allow us to do Z, right? And uh, that'd be interesting to see. I, I think that we will see a lot of innovations in it because it's, it's getting obvious to many people that it just, it doesn't work. And the other thing is to think about how inflexible it is, right? They're doing these long-term studies. When I, when I do recruitment, I place all these people doing long-term studies, but we see with the internal migration within the United States that you can't even plan those things anymore, right? So many people have left California that, you know, perhaps their grid issues might subside a little bit, but they're going to have expended a lot of money that's probably, you know, should have been spent in Texas or wherever people are going from, from California. So I think there's also another point to, to, to raise. Um, I want to move over to one topic I think would be really interesting to talk about is how, how do you think that you can go about educating homeowners on, on this information that you guys, that you have essentially kind of unmasked? Because again, the reason I started this podcast a lot of these things are just not common knowledge. At least, you know, they if they were common knowledge, I wasn't aware of them as a as a young young man. And um, I think it'd be something that, for example, my parents in rural Wisconsin would be very keen to understand, like how it works, right? So I'm very interested. In how do you look at educating the general population and mass about this thing? Yeah, I think. I mean, first, I. I there was an article on microgrid knowledge the, where the, the, the editor-in-chief, Elisa uh, Wood, um, interviewed me a few weeks ago, and a bunch of people responded to that. And I made some of the points that you and I are discussing today. I was surprised by the number of people you know, in, in energy and, and engineering and you know, the industry in general who reached out to me. Um, because, you know, I, I felt these are things that lots of people think about, talk about. Like, I didn't think I said anything novel, but so many people reached out to me to say, yeah, I mean, no one's really talking about sort of independence and getting off grid and, 
um, you know, the issues with the transmission and distribution system. I think just making it really easy for consumers and we don't have to necessarily drive it home as, you know, some passionate advocacy. Instead, you know, when you see the Texas crisis, you know, the Texas freeze and then the ongoing, you know, rolling blackouts in California, power outages in Ohio where, you know, the AEP couldn't handle 200,000 customers in Columbus just cut capacity two weeks ago. I mean, as those events occur, we just need to make it really simple for people to understand that there are other solutions. And so I think it's just those within the industry need to say there's something better than the status quo. I mean, technology has reached a point where we can cost, com you know, competitively provide safe, reliable and, and secure, affordable power. Yeah, so, I think it's yeah, also... I don't, no, yeah, I don't know that I have the mechanism or know exactly how to do that other than, you know, doing our small part of trying to educate consumers. I mean, I do think getting out to community organizations, getting out to sustainability groups, uh, getting out, out to, you know, folks who want to be off grid because they don't necessarily trust, you know, the grid or the government. Um, you know, I think being able to provide those educational resources to people. I mean, we don't do, we don't do any sales, you know, instead, we have customer service superstars who are able, who are available to educate consumers if they have questions. They serve existing customers or answer questions for potential customers. But we're writing blog posts. I mean, you mentioned Russia a few minutes ago. You know, I wrote some blog posts, you know, relating to energy independence and how mm -hmm. you know that that proves the point. I mean, you don't want to have Vladimir Putin controlling you know energy prices in Europe. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just it's it's economically you know volatile as well as, you know, leading to insecurity for people keeping the lights on. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very interesting. And again, I think that the, the issue that I've usually found amongst kind of people who tend to, you know, stick with like, let's go back to the way it was more conservative minded people, um, you know, get, get solar off the, off the grid. Cause a lot of people would say, Oh, it's solar that's causing these issues, which to some extent, you know, may, may be true, but I think that it's very important for these people to understand that there are, the, the alternative that is that is present right now is actually better, right? <laughs> May probably cheaper and ultimately going to have offer you those things that, that you look for. So I think it's very interesting. Hopefully people will just talk about it. Right. And once the, once the solutions become known, people will kind of share it around and maybe perhaps we can make a, a lemonade out of the lemons with some of the bad news in the world, right. With these type of things becoming kind of more popular topics. But um, what one last thing, I wanted to go into is kind of on the education side of things. This might, this may not be perhaps we could look at it from when you're searching for talent. Um, what I've come across a lot, and this is something I'm also just very passionate about is that there's a lot of kind of over-education of people for, you know, getting four-year degrees and something that they're probably not going to use, or they might, you know, maybe use 20% of that knowledge and they're getting into a lot of debt. And they could be getting into a really meaningful career that they really enjoy that pays the bills and that they could, you know, get into the field and innovate or something like that much faster. Do you have any comments generally on when you're hiring, what you look for? Do you feel that there's ways that people can kind of uh, skip, skip certain processes to, to just get into the workforce and actually do things that are meaningful to help kind of uh, fix this electrification problem? Yeah. I mean, I think, we look for people who are compatible with our culture. I mean, so people who are, you know, passionate innovators who are incredibly driven, you know, about something specific, you know, who, who have a real desire to innovate as well as to educate and train themselves. I mean, our culture is very, very strong, very supportive of one another and really one where people are encouraged to, you know, do what they can do. I mean, that from Jeff Hoffman, great, you know, great mentor said, um, you know, hire people smarter than you and then get out of their way. Um, as far as like where people get that education, I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people get four-year degrees or even, you know, go to law school or, you know, MBA programs and, and they have no idea why. And they say it's to make more money. I mean, sure. I mean, you can go make more money and then, you know, on your deathbed and say, you know, I'm so glad I worked my ass off to, make more money. Um, 
you know, you got to find happiness and joy in, in what you do. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, people don't need to just get in in tons of debt because that's what society told them to do. Instead, you know, if people are passionate about energy and passionate about solving, you know, real societal issues, uh, you know, relating to the environment as well as security and energy security. Yeah, I mean, I I would encourage people to pursue education related to that. I mean, we're working with Youth Build uh, in Philadelphia, which, you know, trains kids who've been failed by the traditional schooling system. They go back to school, they get a, a high school degree, but they also learn how to, you know, install solar and, you know, do home uh, energy efficiency and, you know, home renovation and, and contracting, like, as well as other, you know, business and other trades. Um, you know, it's just so inspiring to see these kids who are, you know, find themselves in going back to high school as well as finding a trade that they're passionate about. So, yeah, I think people really nowadays need to explore what it is they are passionate about and love doing. Um, you know, we saw with the great resignation, you know, people said, hey, enough is enough. Like, this isn't what I want to be doing. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think finding what it is you're, you're passionate about doing, being happy doing it is more important than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's also, you know, valuable now because there's so much free information, right? You just need to know a kind of you have to, first of all, elevate your conscious to the point that you understand, I need to find what actually motivates me. And then you can find the information. As long as you're interested in finding it, you will find it. And I think that uh, I'm, I'm part of Gen Z. And I, I think that Gen Z is pretty well set up to, uh, to be a very successful generation because of all the technical skills they understand, right? The world is pretty complicated. And there's a lot of things you learn that you don't necessarily notice. But uh, I'm excited. I'm very, I'm very optimistic person in general. So we'll see you in the too. future. We'll see how the future turns out. Do you, uh, can you let, let people know where to reach you and, and like, what's the best way to, to get a hold? Yeah. So I, I just wanted to add one note on that. I mean, if we have another minute yeah. and that is, yeah. you know, my, my 12 year old um, knows more about, you know, European history and Russian history than, you know, most uh, history majors and history professors because he just got passionate about it a couple of years ago and they don't go to a traditional school. So they're able to learn what they want. And just the internet, he just sat there for like a year and a half, consumed all the information he could. And, you know, he's, he's onto something else now. Mm -hmm. They spent a year and a half, like just immersing himself completely. So, I mean, I love your point that given, you know, all the information in the world, people can become complete experts by just, you know, opening up their laptop and learning. You know, you don't need a four-year degree to become the, you know, a leading expert on something. Yeah, certainly. I definitely, I definitely agree. But anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, people can reach me by, by going to our website, uh, omegrid.com. That's O-H-M-G-R-I-D.com. Or, you know, by all means, email me at bparv at blueskypower.com. Awesome. Very good. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Ben. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to see how you guys continue to develop. Uh, We'll probably check in in a few months, see how things are going. Maybe maybe a year we'll have you back on. Yeah, it'd be great. I had a really good time, Silas. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Uh, please let us know what you thought about the show. Uh, feel free to share this with someone who might find it interesting. I think especially since this is a consumer-focused product, uh, we all probably know at least a few people who might be interested in, in learning what they're doing. So... Uh, please share it around. And then, of course, reach out to Ben on LinkedIn to learn more about what they're doing or connect with him in person. And then if you're joining us for the first time, of course, we appreciate you to subscribe and turn on notifications if you would like to follow in our journey. And, of course, if you enjoyed this particular episode, we'd really appreciate a rating. Um, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor or want to collaborate in some way, you can also reach out to me. My email can be found in the description. And um, just a quick note on our next episode, we will be joined by Adam Rowerdick, who is um, coming from uh, the Breakthrough Energy Ventures-backed Boston Metal. So if you're not familiar with Boston Metal, um, where what they're doing is essentially they have a, a method for produ producing steel that when powered by clean energy is zero carbon emissions. So they're removing a number of processes and essentially reinventing the, the metals industry. Uh, their focus is currently on steel. 
And generally speaking, this is a super fascinating kind of area. Something manufacturing is an area I'm very fascinated by uh, in the clean clean manufacturing. So uh, tune in next time to hear about that and how they are helping uh, reduce roughly 10% of global emissions as they reinvent the metals space. So thank you again so much for listening to today's episode, and we will see you next time on Clean Tech is the Podcast. <laughs>